boils and ghouls. Turn out the lights. And keep the popcorn coming. Because it's time for another episode of Fright Fights Podcast. Fright Fights, Fights Podcast. Get ready for your gore gang. Tyler Cavett, Chris Lax, and Mike McKinney tackling horror news, reviews, and fight for their survival. Coming to you from the Fright Fights Fear Lodge. Get ready to sink your fangs into a battle that will make your blood run cold. This is Fright Fights. Is Fright Fights. Welcome to Fright Fights, the show where genre experts and enthusiasts competitively battle horror films across various topics in the genre. I'm one of your co-hosts, Tyler Cavan, and in this episode, we're taking a journey where mystery, crime, suspense, and horror intersect into the shadows that is horror noir. Playing along with us tonight is the A24 hater, Chris Lax. How's it going, buddy? That's me all day, babe. <laughs> doing good doing good uh ready to ready to battle out my horror noir film i um actually picked up a uh, board game specifically to the film that i'm battling today so i wonder how you forward to it you looked at how you play that exactly because i saw that i was like you know do you just like watch people throughout your window or i'm assuming i'm assuming it's like clue where you have to figure out like who did what in what apartment oh that's cool it is kind of like yeah it's pretty cool Nice, yeah. I love like horror games that kind of take a homage to traditional games that kind of has a horror twist to it. So that sounds like a lot of fun. All right, and for the first time on the show, it's my pleasure to introduce our friend and weird fiction and author and co-operator of Castig. I can't say it. Castigany Publishing. Is that right, Edwin? Castain. Castain. Castain Publishing. Yeah. I always add a e at the end. Edwin Callahan. Yeah. Leave it to Tyler to fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> no honestly that is appropriate for the show because it's kind of it's, it's like a french derived name it sounds like at least you know it so, is yeah it's it's a french derived name sweet so it comes directly kind of into into play with horror noir and the reason we can kind of like i guess like say horror noir um it mixes the genre of film noir and horror noir and i kind of wanted to kind of get um edwin's opinion of this too because this is actually something that you chose right yeah yeah sweet so. um yeah I, I i think it's a great it's a great combo of like two of the coolest kind of uh genre films out there i was really confused whenever you picked the category um i had watched recently a documentary on i think it was on shutter called horror noir and it was about um it was basically about the black community in the horror world and so I watched that and I just, I put those two together and my first choice was going to be like, I was going to pick like Candyman or something like that. And Tyler corrected me. He was like, no, you're, you're thinking wrong. You watched the wrong documentary. You need to pick <laughs> up something that has to deal with crime and investigators. And Right. Yeah. And that's easily confused. Uh, I think the documentary has an E at the end of noir and then like the, the yeah. genre, you know, 
would be just without the E. Yeah, so it's it's like one of those things where here's the thing for me, film noir is one complete different genre than horror, and it's not really an official genre either. It's like when you like mix and blend horror with noir, it kind of comes like to um, it's not really open to interpretation because I think there are strict rules which we can discuss later on too. But I think that it's kind of like one of those things where what exactly would you classify as like horror noir? You know what I mean? Like we understand that the differences of film noir and regular horror noir, but like where do those lines really intersect? And that's kind of the, the tough. I think, I think it's a, it's a confusing, like uh, it can be like a hard genre to pinpoint because you think about it, it's very fluid. It's very broad. I mean, I mean, even like nailing down films for this, you know, I was like thinking of a list. I was like, I mean, I wonder what they're going to pick. There's not really, there's not really a lot, you know what I mean? Um, uh, so, so yeah, it, it's kind of like a, it's a weird, it's a weird genre that's really not been, it's kind of like, like horror Westerns. Like they just like, haven't really been explored um, to their full potential yet. As its own genre. A lot of the films too, in the category is a lot of the older titles. Like you can classify most of the movies from the 30s 40s and 50s in that category just because of the way that filmmaking was perceived back then the way that it was done and um as you know my my choice rear window uh alfred hitchcock almost all the movies that he did could probably be considered horror noir yeah definitely definitely oh yeah 100 percent agree i'm trying to actually let me pull up here real quick because the um for my choice i'm not going to reveal it quite yet but the producer and director um and cinematographer actually kind of were the founders um, of horror noir because horror, horror noir wasn't really necessarily or even film noir to begin with wasn't necessarily something that was like meant to happen it was something that was more so like coined towards critics in like France so it's just kind of like one of those things like in, in like French filmmaker history you look at kind of like the dark kind of I guess you would compare it to where I'm trying to go with this is like you think about like Bauhaus um, style artwork and like different kind of like German expressionism and all that kind of stuff. And you put that into kind of this like crushing black and like, I guess like film noir actually translates to like what, like dark film or something like that. My film school, Tyler, cause I actually, whenever I went to film school, one of the very first things that they, they do before I dropped out, by the way, um, is they actually go over um, a complete thing of, film noir and kind of like the history of it where it all started in the 40s but um essentially it was kind of like you take a cross-section of like universal monsters which is really big throughout the late 20s to the early 40s especially throughout the 30s and you intersect that with something that like france was trying to do with these like crushing blacks kind of like the femme fatale which was not even the femme fatale at the time and kind of like respond to that through a very low budget B movie kind of lens and you put that out there and the critics see it and they're like, well, you know, they're doing something very specific with this style of filmmaking, right? They're trying to, they're trying to really have a, a certain look and the guy, let me see. It's actually like Nicholas. Is it Musaraka or Musaragua? One of those two pronunciations again, French. But at the end of the day, I, he was actually one of the founders who kind of like put that kind of like Bauhaus style of filmmaking to it. Kind of like those like weird shapes, abstract kind of like look. So I think that that's always something that you can look for in very early film noir and say like, hey, 
you know, this is a trademark is the the look of it, the way it, the shadows, the light. And that's something that my director and the reason I chose my film was kind of, I first came out like with the idea of choosing that film just strictly because of that style. So for both of you guys, um, what is the main subject matter that classifies horror noir for you guys? Because for me personally, I take consideration anything that has to deal with like a police investigation where they're the main focal point or like a, an investigator where there's a mystery that happens and those are the lead people trying to figure out what's going on. That's how I interpreted the the category. But what do you guys think? What What's the classification that you guys have for it? I think uh, a heavy way in on moral ambiguity um, with like a, a main character kind of facing existential crises uh, <laughs> but like you said the 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 archetypes come into play like the there has to be a mystery there has to be a femme fatale there has to be uh, a procedure like a, a private investigator a plea a, a cop you know um but the main character always has to be faced with like a moral question and what's like motivating them is it necessarily the right thing or the wrong thing you know um so i think i think morality is a big play and the archetypes of the characters themselves no yeah and i agree with that um 100 because whenever it comes down to that moral ambiguity that you were talking about it's it's definitely becomes formulaic later on right like through like whenever hitchcock was making his films especially it just comes down to like, you know, it becomes, it's a trademark, you know what I mean, of that. But whenever it first was started, it was more just the look. So we went from like a look and then we developed the rules of the genre or the subgenre, right? Both movies that we chose, your choice and my choice, both have that aspect in it. But the main character in both of them has a dilemma of some sort of a, is this the right decision? Is the wrong decision? And ultimately, based on what happens with whatever mystery they're they're confined with, determines whether it was right or wrong. So, I mean, yeah, it's that's definitely one of the major aspects of it. And I think that one thing I will say before we even think about the films is, I think that the three films that we're going to be battling today really does kind of capture a wide array of film noir. We go from early roots to more classic film noir to like a neo-noir which i think that the three really encapsulates the genre really well so i am glad although spoiler alert i am very pissed that we did not choose invasion of the body snatchers i'm kind of pissed that we didn't choose diabolique um you know there's tons of there's so many movies like edwin said it's just like such a you can look at it different ways to where it's super difficult to even pinpoint hey what movie would you choose for horror noir or crime horror and then it kind of goes, you know, well, you know, there's so many movies you could kind of classify as film noir. Where do you begin? And I think that we have a really good jumping off point. I don't know if you guys would agree with that. Yeah, I think there's a, this is a good trifecta. And I think what you're saying about um, kind of placement in Hollywood filmmaking, you know, you've got your choice uh, definitely rooted in that that old style of picture making. And then. Chris's choice is just classic Hollywood cinema. I mean, uh, at its at its finest peak, and then um, you know, and then straight up neo noir, neo horror noir as it gets. So I guess, um, Edwin, I will ask because 
as this being your choice, we got to talk about it a little bit on there. What kind of like got you initially into horror? Because I mean, we've known each other now for what, like a little over two years, and we spoke yeah. about horror at length. And I, I mean, you can tell you're an absolute horror fiend. I mean, horror writer, um, everything about you just like reads, you know, very like horror expert, I guess you would say. So kind of like what was the beginning roots for you whenever you first kind of got into the genre? I, I get asked this quite a few times too. Um, and I think I tell a different story every time. Um, really? So, but, but like I have these, you know, I have the, these, these, you know, nostalgic memories of things that like really got me into um, kind of like the macabre in general. Uh, you know, I I was terrified of horror as a kid, so um, I I was always like hiding behind, you know, the hiding behind the recliner when my family was watching Halloween, or um, you know, I was terrified of uh, killer clowns from outer space, like absolutely terrified. Um, and then you know, I I got older um, and started getting into um, monster movies and stuff with my grandpa. Watched Twilight Zone a lot. Um, and picked up Stephen King at a young age. Uh, and it kind of just spiraled from there. Um, and then then as I got older, you know, I, I always loved horror films and stuff and read horror fiction and comic books. Um, but then like in college, I I, uh, I I guess I got to this point where I was like, I really like all this stuff, but I never really called it horror. I never really got into the culture. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I went to school for art and philosophy. I was like huge into philosophy and then kind of that merged from there. Um, and I started reading horror fiction and watching a fuck ton of horror movies and it just turned into this. And now that's all I do. <laughs> that's, that's all I think about. So, um, it's just one of those things that kind of just snowballed over my life and then brought me to this point. I mean, hell yeah! I mean, that's. But I love hearing, I love hearing the stories because every single horror fan has a different story, and it's so weird to hear what got somebody started and where they originated it at. And so, I, I do have to ask you, Edwin, um, what is your favorite horror film of all time? Because that will be knowing that answer is like an insight of like who you are. Man, that's like a really, really hard question. Um, and I don't really like to answer it because I could say a million different movies. Um, but at this point in my life, um, I would say, you know, I would say Prince of Darkness. John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness is like probably my all time favorite horror movie. Um, but then, you know, I mean, I love uh, like Halloween is the first horror movie I ever sat down and watched in its entirety. Um, and I like to this day, like I remember watching it for the first time and being like, whoa, that was insane. Like I did not, I thought it was just, you know, like a hack and slash movie to be scared of as a kid. And then when I saw it, I was like, this is, there's something more in there. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Those are like kind of my two answers, but I mean, and I got a whole list of movies that I could go through and say are my favorite horror movies. Um, man. Uh, so, I mean, like, uh, it just it bounces around um i love i love fulci's the beyond um oh, yeah. i mean it's it's just a it's a really heavy question um so yeah yeah 
uh, those are all, those I mean, are I guess three, my, my roundage. Yeah, all three of those are great. I mean, the Beyond with that, there's like that maggot tornado. Is that the one I'm thinking of, or is that the Gates of Hell? Which one is that one? Isn't uh, there like a big, the, big storm of like maggots that fly? You know, on that on that one. Um, Carolyn, I can't even think of her name. Um, yeah, the the Beyond though. That's Fulci's one of the greatest that films that Fulci's made. Yeah, it's the Gates of Hell like trilogy. So it's um, what is it? Um, the Beyond, um, House of the Cemetery, City of the Living Dead, City of the Living Dead. Yeah, three fantastic films, and that's kind of like how I am too. Edward, it's just like impossible. Whenever I get asked, like, "Hey, what's your favorite horror movie of all time?" Because the first thing people always ask is like, "Hey, you know, oh, you love film? What's your favorite movie?" Kind of thing. And it comes down to yeah. the point where I'm like, "Here's my like." they had this idea of like a handshake five, like what are the five films whenever you like first meet somebody that you can say like, Hey, these are my five. It's like not my favorite, but these are like my five films. I like, you know, I love like a watch. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So it's always like one of those kind of things with me too. All right. Well, sweet. Um, well, I think, I mean, you're kind of familiar with the the podcast Edwin. So I, I'm going to recap the rules just to make sure that we, we got it. But I think, I think, I think it's gonna be like a lot of fun. I really do. So basically I'm going to have three different films here. I'm going to introduce one. Chris is going to introduce one. And then Mike, which is not here, picking the longest fucking movie too, of course, is, um, <laughs> is going to be going. <laughs> we'll just kind of like um, discuss yeah. it. And then what you'll do. Fuck you, Mike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Fuck you, Mike. <laughs> Come on. What the hell's going on here? And um, what, what we'll do at the end is we'll just kind of eliminate it down. You'll pick third place, second place, first place. And um, yeah. And we will just, we'll chat. So my first film, um, I'm like, oh, I'll go first. So my, the first film is going to be from 1942. We're looking at Jacques Tournier's Cat People. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the cat people. Women whose kiss means death, whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. Now, I want to say that this was one of the very first films. Again, I wanted to talk about my film school experience because before I dropped out and decided not to do it, I actually love the quote from the director that um, was shown to us on the screen. I actually pulled it here because I think this is absolutely for any kind of young filmmaker out there or somebody who really like is just into like classic cinema. It really kind of like makes you inspired to want to make something immediately, which we all love. So Jacques Trenier says cinema um, is su- for success in cinema for anyone, any job is directly linked to your love of the theater. Anyone who loves it passionately, um, anyone who can adore cinema and for who lives it can never be stopped. They'll make it. So it's just kind of like one of those things. It's just like, you know, if you really truly believe in cinema, you're going to make it at the end of the day. And that's kind of like what happened to him with cat people, because the people he collaborated with to make this film was super low budget. And this kind of came at a time in Hollywood where again, as a response to universal monsters, RKO Val Luden himself, which is Jacques Trenier, gets together comes up with a, a script essentially and they are able to to pull it off and i mean like it's obviously considered one of the most classic films of all time now we're good as far as say you know the sequel of course goes a little bit more into the i guess you would say voyeurism of what they're trying to do with the original but you have to think this was of a time of exact um how would you say it? it's almost like very 
reclusive in terms of what they could and could not show. There's like at moments throughout this, like the film where you see um, what is it, Irina and she's like really trying to like push this almost like sexual frustration um, directly into Oliver. So you see basically at the opening scene, um, Irina, which is our. I was going to say, it starts okay. off really quickly with that. Yeah, it's just like, I, I want to mention that too, because that, that was actually be part of the discussion. So I guess we could start there, honestly, without even talking anymore. We can just walk through the entire film. Because if you look at the first like 10 minutes, it's kind of crazy how fast it moves. And I was thinking at one point, I'm like, you know, is this covering the the period of like three days? Is this like a Romeo and Juliet situation? Or is this like multiple months? But then if yeah, you like I, watch it. I it thought has. it was an overnight. Like I literally thought it was an overnight <laughs> thing. Like they meet and the next day they're in love with each other. And it kind of does happen like that. But again, that's, I think, part of this kind of like voyeurism that the film is trying to do. And but I mean, it, it does mention, I think, a couple times that like a month's passed or a few months has passed. So I'm thinking the way I'm I'm interpreting it is that they meet and they kind of just like fall in love rather quickly. But I think it's over the course of a couple months or maybe like a month or something, which is still pretty fast. Yeah. And it's 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 good to note that the movie itself is like just barely over an hour long, too. So the fact that everything happens so quickly and it's such a short film feels even quicker than what it actually is as well. That's one thing I love about old cinema like this is that most of the movies were, I mean, they were always under 90 minutes most of the time, um, unless they were like some kind of epic. But horror movies in particular barely went over an hour for the most part. I mean, you look at like Nosferatu, you look at... Um, Frankenstein, you look at all the Universal stuff and all the RKO stuff. I mean, uh, another movie by uh, uh, fucking Jacques, uh, Jacques Turner and Val Luton, I Walked With a Zombie. That movie's like literally like 70 minutes long. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I, I think the short, um, the short duration of the film allows them to kind of push the story a lot faster and you kind of get into it better and it cuts out all the kind of cuts out all the, the the filler so there's really just like no filler they just like get you right into the movie and you're already cracking into the lore exactly and i think that also a big thing was is they had to shoot these on actual film and these all being b movies like universal was not the studio that it was today like universal was making films that was super low budget and they were barely you know scraping by the monsters honestly kind of saved the studio from going under at one point and then we have RKO, which kind of just followed in the footsteps of Universal at that point. And they were trying to make these like quick turnover, like, you know, super fast films. And I think that it kind of came down to just time, money and resources. And I mean, I don't know how ex- I, I know it's very expensive to, to show a film. And back then, the film was even more expensive than what it comes out to like, you know, today, because it was just much, much rarer. They didn't make near as much of it. So then it kind of comes on the runtime, which I kind of think it works if it went any longer. I don't know if it, here's the thing though. I hate bringing the remake into this because I think that it's not really a fair comparison. But the remake, it works incredibly well too. I love mm-hmm. 1980s. I do too. I do too. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's one thing. Um, and I want to mention this before we go too far away from it. Um, talking about the 80s version because I know that the guy, um, the guy who actually did the cinematography for the 80s version watched the 40s version 
and was able to consult with the the some of the people who had known the guy because i mean the guys passed away that did the original cinematography but they were like you know what were you trying to do but censorship issues obviously they weren't even allowed i made a note here because there was actually something that i saw they weren't even allowed to like show their bare chest like men weren't um there was like moments where they had to like stay like two to three feet apart and they had like like measuring tapes making sure that the men would stay far enough away from the women because the viewers were being repulsed um by like the the fact that like they would see something sensual happening on screen and you know obviously like after the war and stuff a lot of that stuff came a little bit you know easier like it was much easier to not have as much censorship at that point but the 80s version was able to everything that they want to do in the 40s version they had to hold back with the 80s version just kind of took it and ran you know what i mean so if you watch the 80s version what i'm trying to say is you can kind of see what the 40s version was wanting to do you know what i mean you guys get the, i don't know if you guys have seen the 80s version you have it one right yeah 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 it definitely expands on the lore and i mean the the the, the 80s one is that able to touch on like you know incest and sexuality in a lot lot more ways than that was more implied uh things that could be implied rather than actually shown in the the original um the original rko film you know yeah which i mean i want to say that like it's pretty apparent though from the very first scene like we have like Irina is like sketching like fashion sketching this picture of this leopard and Oliver just kind of comes up behind her and he, she's like, please fuck me is essentially like what she's yeah. saying at one point. She's <laughs> yeah. like, let's go back to your place. And that, I mean, I mean like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you, if somebody's drawing a Panther <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> turns me on, you know, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fucking like, I, it's just so apparent there, but then she has this thing where she gets cold feet because she realizes that she's going to, you know, turn into, I guess you'd say a leopard a cat person. <laughs> however you want to interpret that but it's saying so I, much more i uh, um i was a little confused when it first started because we get about 15 20 minutes into it and you see that she's put off by wanting to do anything with him really or be around him too much but they don't really go in and just blatantly say this is what's going to happen it's kind of like piece by piece until she talks to the doctor the doctor explains this is why you feel this way I was like, within the first like twenty minutes, I was confused. I was like, why does she feel this way? Why does she have these these feelings of like not wanting to be around him? Until we get like literally to the doctor saying, "This is why you're doing this." You know, I think the movie. Uh, I mean, in general, both films, but we're talking about um, the first one. Um, that it's especially more apparent in the first one that the whole thing is about Irina's kind of sexual regression um and her fear of sex in general that's that's it's her fear of intimacy is what the whole kind of the the whole gist is that's going on um and that fear is not just inherited out of nowhere it's it's like familial it's something that has you know plagued the women in her lineage for for generations you know um it's a curse Mm-hmm. like se- sex bad you know um and, and then <laughs> that that's kind of how it was you know back then you know it's 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 like, like that the whole film is it's just subversive because you know it, 
in the sense is it's ironic because the film is, you know, implying a lot of sexual regression without actually coming out and saying it. You know what I mean? That's like, it's like, oh, so the woman's afraid of sex. We're just going to go send her to a shrink. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> hey, hey, that's so. like, re, um, that's actually really funny that you mentioned that because it's just like any kind of psychology you see in horror films or film in general before, you know, I think what the 1990s was whenever people started taking psychology remotely serious. And anything before that's just like, let's give her a lobotomy. I think that would work. Kind right. Of, Right. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? So any any kind of time, I mean, I, I laugh at that because it's just so like it's, it's fucking barbaric that we would even think to do that. But if you see in the nineteen like forties style films, or even 50s, 60s, 70s, hell, even some of the, I mean, I would go as far as to say it's up to the early eighties. You see them almost like gaslighting women into like believing something that's completely untrue for the benefit of the man in film, and it's just like, hey, yeah, just send her to a shrink kind of thing. I love that. I just want to mention that because it's just absolutely ridiculous throughout. And she goes like multiple times and the guy's just like, yeah, we think, you know, basically you should, you should kind of have sex with your husband. You know, what are you, what are you feeling? How are you feeling? Yeah. Well, want to point it out that she actually only goes once. And the next time the doctor come, the doctor comes to her. Oh, okay. Yeah. He just wanted to help out. I don't know what else I could say. (laughs) (laughs) But okay. So I have a couple scenes I wanted to mention throughout too, that I really, really love because the scene there was one particular scene where they were they're talking about this figure um and irena it has in her house and i forgot what it was exactly they call it's called something i don't know if you guys know but um essentially it's like depicting this like medieval or like 16th century maybe even style like king and it's like it's being impelled by like a cat sitting there and it's being impelled by like a sword and it kind of like tells a broad scope of like almost like i guess would it be like demonology in a way it has like demonic presences to it there were spiritual um ideas and concepts surrounding it and it kind of like insinuates that irena is not really part of a cult but it almost like appears that way as they're at dinner one night and she's sitting there in this cat woman esque woman oh man i love that scene man that scene is so weird and like it's so weird and vague because you don't really like 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 it's like there's just this mysterious cat lady cat ish type lady that comes in and she's like dropping these hints about <laughs> Irina and you yeah. know Irina's like you know get the fuck out of here you know like don't fuck this up you know <laughs> I'm trying to get like and, that's the thing is they, like, Irina wants it too. so bad but she just I mean obviously she can't do it because she's she's a fucking cat first of all but yeah. I'm sorry, Chris. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say they they call, they actually, like, she's known in the area as the cat lady. Like, I, I wasn't sure why she's called the cat lady. Like, does she own a lot of cats or do people think she turns into a cat? Is that like a common thing there? Like, I don't know. Well, at the very beginning, who says, um, there's a quote at the very beginning here that I wrote it down too as I was watching it because um, it stuck directly out to me, not only for film noir, but kind of. It alludes from the very beginning that Irene is kind of a cat. She has a quote that says, I like the dark. It's friendly. And if you think about that, it's like, okay, well, cats are kind of reclusive. Cats are, you know, to themselves. And it kind of hints to this more of a, I guess, mystery of Irene's background. And as she, why does she have this, I don't know, like 400 year old statue at the time? 
And I think that it doesn't really go into the lore. And there's not a lot of people who talk about this, the, the lore of it. But I think that it really kind of alludes that Irina comes from this like cursed cult. You know what I mean? Is and I know yeah, yeah. There's like almost a folk, like a folk-ish nature of the uh, the background for Irina. Um, yeah, I definitely think it's cultish. You know, you know. I think the '80s film kind of goes a little bit more into detail about it too, um, which I do appreciate. But um, and this one, I mean, it does a great job of kind of keeping that mystery. Um, so that there was that scene though I wanted to mention because I fucking love that scene. I'm glad you guys like it too. Um, there's one where um Alice Moore, which is the guy, the the woman that's hooking up with um Oliver on the side, she's leaving work. And as she's leaving work, um, she goes down to dinner with Oliver, and there's a parallel with the lighting and suspense um that kind of like goes together whenever she's getting in the, the bus remember what i'm talking about like the bus scene and then she's like kind of like overly paranoid like it's a scene that's haunted by paranoia and i love the look of that and that's kind of like how i get like the kind of like the bauhaus kind of style um because you said like the architecture the crazy german expressionistic kind of concept of the the lighting the set design the suspense which is hitchcocking at that point everything yeah and that's uh absolutely. that's like a first jump scare too that's like that's that early jump scare with the bus coming by when she's freaking out walking to the bus stop you know it's one of those scenes probably in the theater people were like whoa what the fuck you know <laughs> i mean definitely especially in the 40s that they were that's 100 percent there but um so i think that one trademark of this i also wanted to talk about was the fact that i mean obviously RKO makes it in response to the universal um, monsters. And I think it has a very specific, this is kind of like a great entry point to horror noir, I guess you would say, because in this film, particularly you look at it and it kind of has this very certain particular look um, like I've been talking about. So there was one scene where a lamp falls off on the floor. You know what I'm talking about? The scene where they're like, they just keep acting like she like Irina gets like angry. I think it is. And she like, throws it off in the floor and they're sitting there like yelling at each other and it's completely dark and they only like kind of depend on that one singular light source. And it gets so fucking dark in some points of it where you, you can't even tell what's even going on around the actors and they just kind of keep going with it. And I think that's something that, you know, we talk about film noir being like, you know, a dark kind of stylistic film um, almost as if it's like a artistic choice. And I think that whenever you see something like that in cat people, it also kind of validates that. It kind of like, you know, opens up that world of film noir. Whenever you see the different, you know, sets, the different architecture throughout, um, the choices they make with lighting and all that. So I think that that's something that you definitely could see is saying, hey, you know, this film very clearly has strong noir roots and i think that in terms of like a femme fatale i think that irena is a great femme fatale i mean i think that if you want to talk about you know i don't think at the point femme fatales were even necessarily established as a character in film but i think whenever you see irena that's just a perfect definition of what you would expect femme fatale to be i mean she's beautiful at the time too like i mean and, absolutely gorgeous and you get a real good sense of that too in the swimming pool scene when you know you see the shadows working around the pool you don't know if you see something or not 
And then it's immediately interrupted at the end of it by Irina coming in at the last moment, you know, telling him, oh, I'm sorry, did I startle you? Like, something like that. You know, she's really good with that. Dude, I yeah, love that scene rocks. That is one of my favorite. Yeah, yeah. There's kind of something funny. interesting about how uh, Irina changes, too, from as a femme fatale. You know, she at the beginning, she's very innocent and sweet-seeming. Um, and you're kind of tricked. You know, to think that, uh, you know, you're you're on her side, that she's not, you know, basically the antagonist of the film. Um, and, you know, towards the end, you know, you get to that pool scene and she's full on like embraced her her primitive, you know, uh, cat people, you know, um, destiny. <laughs> she just embraced the fact that she's a cat. No, I mean, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about the ending here, because. I think that we're heading that perfect direction too. So the, the, there's the pool scene. And then afterwards we see Irina eventually after a few more, um, there's a couple more scenes after that, but skipping ahead to Irina getting to what is it? Central park zoo. And she steals the key from the groundskeeper there, which they've had some exchanges before. And I think he's kind of like onto her like primitive side as you know everyone was talking about. I think he kind of knows, like he seems like he's kind of cool with it. Like he's like, you know, you know, I, you're here taking like these um, sketches of the Panther. You know, if you want to just hang out here, you, you could do it whenever you want. Is essentially kind of like what he offers her. It seems like, and she takes his key, lets the Panther out. Panther gets hit by a car at the very end. So, I was kind of curious. <laughs> I, I laughed. I, I laughed really hard at that film or that scene. Like she lets it out, it runs across the street jumps over a ledge and immediately gets hit by a car like i felt so sorry for it like it was like i'm free clunk well you know chris honestly this was before um this is before PETA or the humane society or anything existed so you wonder how was the treatment of these animals on set did they kill a panther you know what i mean like what happened yeah don't you get to see the panther's body too after it gets hit um and it looks yeah. real. Like, mm -hmm. um, and I wondered, I think I wondered the same thing. I'm like, man, I bet they actually killed a fucking Panther for that movie back then. Yes. Um, and, and I mean, that shit, that, I mean, that shit didn't even change until like that one movie where what's his name killed all the horses, uh, in the eighties. And that, that one, um, epic horror movie that was like one of the biggest box office bombs. Anyways. Yeah. Animals were, treated pretty shitty back then um in films well dude um have you ever seen um what is it wake and fright i that's one of my favorite movies and oh yeah 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 they're in the back and they have a bunch of kangaroos hopping around and if you watch it like if you just watch it it's like okay yeah no, they're just killing kangaroos or whatever but then you find out no they were actually killing kangaroos and it, whenever yeah. you watch it almost is heartbreaking because these animals, I mean, I guess they are diamond does a diamond dozen in Australia, but still, I mean, they're like murdering these animals on screen, like fucking, like shooting them, and they don't kill just a couple. Like, I mean, they kill a bunch, and it makes you wonder, like, do they kill a panther for you know, um, cat people? Because it seemed like they fucking killed a panther. You know what I mean? But at the same, you time, never know. Yeah, I mean, you see. <laughs> You, you see that the camera is one shot too. The camera like is sideways and it shows the panther jumping on top of the ledge. And then it's slowly panned as the panther jumps down and you hear the car. And then the camera pans down as you see the panther under the car. 
I, I don't I don't know. Did they I mean let's just we're gonna send an email and ask, see what's going on. But I think that I mean the idea of the Panther getting hit by the car almost the way I interpret it is it's kind of like Irina's you know relationship is over and she's kind of embraced this this like primitive side, but like it's it like it's like the old her is dead is kind of the way I, I took it at least. I don't know if you guys can read it that way or not. I thought I thought it was going to be like an outlet for a, a, a cover up of the murder because they have this escape Panther. The, the professor dies by the attack of a Panther. They put two, two together and they say the Panther did it. It's, it's dead. Now nobody's going to be arrested because it was an accidental murder from an animal. So an animal attack. So I mean, I, I dug it though. I mean, I think that this, this film, it would be Edwin's ranking at the end, but I mean, this is, I think top tier. 10 out of 10 style of I, there's one there's one scene i have to talk about because yeah, it's real small but it was really funny so there's the scene where he goes and buys her a cat and the cat uh <laughs> doesn't like her like it hisses at her won't let her pick her up and they immediately walk back to the pet store and he's like i'm here to exchange this cat for a canary and <laughs> the, he's like okay come on in and they walk in they place the cat on the table. She grabs the canary, puts it in a bag, and hands it to him. Like, is the exchange rate the same price going for a cat and a canary back in the forties? <laughs> Maybe it was. I mean, also, I would have yeah. mentioned why you why you're bringing that scene up. It's kind of funny because they had just went on like one single date, and I'm like, dude, you're gonna buy a, a cat for this woman just after the second date, and you already kind of alluded to the fact that she is kind of like fucking crazy about cats <laughs> in a weird way. <laughs> They moved quick back then. I'm yeah, kidding. they did, didn't they? <laughs> Arranged marriage, man. All right. Yeah, something. One thing about the movie, though, and this can go for both movies that we're talking about tonight, yeah. is especially back then, each scene is a lot of talking. And when you have really good actors that can give you that much information in one scene, you can't take your eyes off the film. Like you're, you're intrigued. You want to know more, even though they just literally talked for 10 minutes straight, you're interested, you're invested. And I think this movie really did that well with playing on what information they're giving you and the characters that they're giving you with like the two characters talking about just random things, but you're invested because they're doing it so well. Yeah. And I think that that kind of also comes down to like, they trim the fat, like their running time, it being only 70 minutes long. You look down to it, it's just like, well, they had to, you know, their relationship had to move kind of quick. The the way the, the, the film goes is quick. Everything about it just, there's no, it's like, you know what it reminds me of? Reanimator from, what is it, like 83 or whatever. It There's not one ounce of fat on that movie, and it just zooms from beginning to end, and you're just like, man, this goes like super fucking fast. I think that's kind of like what I, you mentioned I earlier at the the beginning. You said that quote from Val Luton about the theater, um, and I think that applies to especially the first two films um, we're talking about. And you mentioned Reanimator, and the reason I thought of that is because when Gordon made Reanimator, he came from theater, um, so that's why that movie moves so quick. Um, and there's no fact because they they rehearse that shit, and there's it's just literally meant to be like on a stage. And I think I think both the first two films in in the show tonight they are they are almost you know back then it was like 
theater and film weren't too far off from each other. Um, and everything from the set design and the way the lighting is done, it's very meticulous. The dialogue, the dialogue moves the story. I mean, it's not like a, uh, it, you know, it's not like a John Cassavetes movie where people are just talking just a fucking jaw. The, the, the dialogue moves the story in this, um, and every second counts. Um, so I, I think that's important too. There's just a way, uh, to, to keep the, uh, keep the focus and keep you entertained and, and really deliver on, um, on the plot of the film. I think, yeah, that's very, I'm, now I'm just thinking yeah. about that. Cause it is very interesting. And yeah, I wonder if that is it. Cause you know, back whenever they were making cat people and right before that cinema had only been around and narrative form at least. Cause they had obviously like, you know, German expressionism kind of was like the, the first wave of narratives coming in. And right before that was kind of just like, Hey, you know, let's let's do like a George Melies, you know, style of film where we're just telling very short, quick stories. But then we have like the movies of the, the 40s, obviously like Citizen King comes in and people are like, what the hell? You know, this is a technical achievement. But you look at it, and it's all very, very much like a, a very fine tuned stage play almost. And I think it's just maybe also because that's the kind of storytelling they were used to at the time. You know what I mean? We have obviously we're like fucking changed so much now. And like 2023 here we set and you, know, you see the kind of movies that we have coming out and ho- mainstream Hollywood today is definitely not what it used to be. Um, of course we have like some like indie films. I'm not trying to criticize indie films of any kind, but I'm just saying like, you know, things have changed so much from what they used to be in the way we tell stories are. And I think that a lot of times you, you look at these old films from the 1940s, 1930s, and it's just immediately kind of written off like, Hey, you know, it's, it's black and white. It, it, the narratives is, you know, it's not good storytelling. The, the way the camera, the, you know, the cinematography is not very good. And there's a lot of complaints um, by like a lot of people that just casually watch movies or doesn't want to watch a movie for like, you know, narrative value. And you look back at these, these films from like a hundred years ago and you're like, well, you have to understand what kind of fucking achievement was that at the point? You know what I mean? What kind of like thing did they have to go through to get this made? How hard was it? And you know, the lights, even under the fucking lights were like, what, 150 degrees at times. Like they were saying Suspiria, which is like 30 years after cat people was made 40 years after they're like, it got so hot on that set at times it approached over a hundred degrees and like Gary Argento was like fucking like sweating. Everybody was like fucking sweating. Like their makeup was like melting off their face. It was so hot. So it's just, I mean, brava to them. And I could not do Hollywood back in the forties, fifties and sixties. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No way. No way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, this was a first time watch. Yeah. This was a first time watch for me. Um, I'd heard it and I've seen the scene before the swimming pool scene we talked about. It is, it pops up in a lot of people's lists for really scary and creepy moments. So I've always wanted to see it. And I'm, I'm glad you picked it because I finally got a chance to check it out. Um, and Edwin said it best earlier when he said the dialogue moves the movie and it really does. And that's what really invested me into this movie was the dialogue part of it. I didn't care about the, uh, about what was you know going to happen with the, the scene to see like the, what am I looking for here? The, uh, the effects. I care about the effects. I, I wasn't looking to see, you know, a cat person or anything. I was just invested in these two characters and what they had to say to each other. And I was really, really into it. Um, I, I gave this movie a seven out of 10. I mean, if I was going to rate it, I would probably go easily nine out of 10. Like, I mean, it's 
we'll save Edwin's though. I don't want to. I'm trying to. Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna spill the beans yet. I don't want. I don't want. Yeah, the beans cannot be spilled to us because I want. I. I. I mean, I'm. I'm fighting for cat people here. I mean, that's what we're doing. Chris, hit us with your film. What do you got? Uh, so Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Rear Window, and this one is from 1954, I believe. This is the scene of the crime. A crime of passion, filmed in a way you have never seen before, and as no one else would dare attempt. But the screen's master of suspense, the producer-director who shocked the world with Psycho. And this one takes the main character who has been injured in a, well, I, I want to say like a photography accident. It's kind of hard to say. He was injured in a photography accident. Um, so he has a broken leg and he's got a cast that covers from his foot up through his hip. So he can't really move. He's stuck in a wheelchair. He is living in a uh, an apartment complex that has an open view window for his back room. And it looks out a bunch of other open view windows too in the other compart- uh, other apartments across the uh, across the yard, and so he's stuck there all day, just all night, watching other people do their daily routines. And he just happens to see and hear things that he think might be a murder. So he starts investigating with himself and with his um, his I guess girlfriend, and then calls a police detective to help out and everything, and. You don't know whether it's something that he is, you know, that really happened. He really saw it or you're, I mean, you're right there with him. You're learning these things as he learns these things. So you don't know if it's in his head, if he's just trying to make something out of nothing. And it really puts you in the mood of, you know, what's going on. Like you're, you're in the mystery. You're, you're right there with it. Uh, this was also another first time watch for me. And I'm glad that I picked this one out as well. Um, what did you guys think of Rear Window? Oh, I fucking love it, man. I think it's a, it's a near perfect movie, to be honest. Um, it's concise. It's, I mean, it's just to the point. Uh, there's really not much of a dull moment. It's another one of those films that are, um, it, it, it's, it's almost like a play. Uh, like even the sets, they look so vivid and rich and the color, uh, the technicolor is so rich and like, you know, even down to Grace Kelly's fucking blonde hair. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just I was gonna, awesome film. I was going to bring up, bring up the actual set because you said it looks like a play and it, or it plays out like a play and it really does. I actually had a hard time deciding if it was actually filmed on a stage like on a set, they built that set or was it actually filmed at a apartment complex that they just were able to rent out? Like, Oh, it's all a set. Yeah. It's all a set. They built a whole set. Um, so all that was, it it is, it's basically a giant play that you're watching someone else watch other people in. So it's like, there's this very just big channel of voyeurism, um, invested into the film too. And that's just, I mean, I guess that's a common, Hitchcock motif, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's very, very just, uh, just a solid, solid fucking film. I really, I really do love this movie. And I mean, I will, I'll add to that because I remember um, first hearing that whenever it was filmed completely on a set, 
And it was only because Hitchcock had a very wasn't correct me if I'm wrong wrong anyone about this, but Hitchcock had like a very specific look to how he wanted the um the apartments to have a layout with that courtyard, and they tested so many different areas, and he was not happy with any of them. And the only thing they could do is just resort to to building it, which I think was just fucking crazy. I mean, this thing is huge. Like these these apartments are beautifully done. And I thought for a minute, I, I forget sometimes how meticulous Hitchcock is with his, I mean, he's the master of suspense, yes, but with his style of filmmaking and how Technicolor kind of plays into a lot of his later films, I didn't know if it was just my Blu-ray I was watching, but it looks so fucking good. Like, it looks, mm-hmm. I don't even know how to describe, like, I mean, the colors is like, argento-esque at times like it's just like yeah yeah bold colors and there was this moment it reminded me almost like a place in the sun um with the the sunset landscape in the back and like it was this like glowing orange and you just see you know all these shots of people living their life and as you as you kind of look around you're just like man this thing just is dazzling you could just on you honestly just feel like you're with him you know what i mean you feel like you're with him watching them yeah, and could you imagine the choreography it took to get everybody in their spots, what they need to do, when they need to do it, when the camera has to move from one spot to the next? Because there's a lot of shots that are stationary shots where the camera just pans up or pans down to different people doing different things. And I mean, it was it was really intriguing. On like, I think the filmmaking aspect of this movie was just one of the most interesting things about the film. I think the set itself, uh, the set design itself is almost like uh, a character in the film. Um, and so that's something I really like. I like when the setting, like even down to the fact that there is this heat wave going on and every everything's really hot and it's adding to the suspense. It's like making everyone, you know, on edge. Um, the setting itself is almost this antagonistic character um, kind of, uh, you, know, you know, playing on... Um, james stewart like uh it's driving him to to the edge and you know he's stuck there in his his wheelchair and it's just the whole really really it's not even the the murder that's happening that is is really going against him it's the the set and the setting that's really everything around him is coming against him and antagonizing him and kind of pushing him over the edge Dude, I'm so glad you said that too, because I actually I yeah, remember once, and it was talking about how the house can play a main character in a horror film. You know what I mean? So like, one hundred percent, yeah, for it, sure. It, it almost becomes like its own kind of like, as you said, antagonist. It comes its own killer, and you see like films like you know, Rear Window. I just had mentioned Suspiria, um, Amityville Horror, all these films where the the actual house itself. I mean, Possession. That fucking like movie from 1980, that the house, the apartment she moved into it just feels achy. You know what I mean? So there's something about having that that grandscape around. And not only that, but it kind of is like a social commentary as well, because not only are you getting these crazy ass like sets and like this beautiful technicolor, and you're getting this whole entire like atmosphere, 
um, for James Taylor and you feel like you're really watching again, like voyeuristic almost into people's life. And you're kind of like, you know, getting almost like this connection with them, but you're also seeing so many different like walks of life. Like you're seeing like people falling in love. You're seeing lonely people. You're seeing people who are, you know, suffering more than others. You're really kind of like getting this very personal view. So not only are you getting, you know, James Stewart and, you know, but fucking what I forgot his character's name for some reason, but James Stewart as the the main character in seeing his life, but you're actually living through like other people as well. You know what I mean? It kind of has that rec- reclusiveness again. Yeah, yeah, yes, and and you're rooting right. for him the entire time. You want we, people Chris? to believe him. Like I, I was, I was wanting people to believe him because uh, he's a likable character. You believe everything that he's saying is truthful. Like you, you don't think that he's lying about anything and, and you get, you, you see his girlfriend and you want her to believe him. And then, you know, eventually she's on board and then his, you know, what a housekeeper, whatever that lady is that comes and helps her, you know, she's really, she has her own unique style too, but then she's on board and they're all working together and it just makes you like the situation that's happening and you want it to be in his favor. You want things to play out in his turn. And, that's another reason why I like the movie too. Yeah. I think um, what Hitchcock can do in a movie like this with what he uses is minimalism, or I guess makes you think it's minimal, but really there is so much going on. Like you were talking about panning to different scenes going on um, in the apartments. Uh, You know, each, each one of those pieces, you know, is like uh, moving a pawn to the next the next element of the story, um, you know, kind of driving Jeff or uh, James Stewart's character um, over the edge. And I mean, he really doesn't have anything to do but be obsessed with what's going on around him. Um, And that's what it kind of boils down to is obsession. um, And Hitchcock is really able to pull off those, that, that human experience, that, that human emotion of, of obsession. I mean, you see it through all this films, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. I think the, the way he kind of draws on obsession, boredom to obsession is, is really, really fascinating in this film. And it's, it's weird because it's not really scary. You know, you're not really scared, but you're definitely feeling anxiety. You're feeling more anxiety than Jeff because you're like, oh man, no one believes this fucking guy. You're the only one that that believes him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you're the yeah. only one that's on his side. And you know, I want to say too. Um, speaking of like Hedgecock, yeah, he, he does have a very particular style of filmmaking in terms of like suspense. I mean, but if you look at this film, I don't know how. how maybe your guys' opinion on this, but. Do you guys feel like the suspense in this is a little bit different than his other films? Like it almost feels like long, like for example, like long takes like this one, you feel like it really just spends time going from apartment to apartment. Like we had mentioned before, and maybe I guess isolation into your house and you kind of Hitchcock's films. I mean, like there are, he, he has trademarks in his films that do that, but this scene, it felt different. Did you guys feel that way? Yes, yes, 100%. I mean, you yeah. look at films like like Rope. Rope has a lot of harsh Dutch angles in it. You look at a film like um you look at a film like Psycho even. I mean, they're totally this rear window is that's what I mean. It's is it's it's 
it's like his uh, almost it's, it's his masterpiece you know um i i think uh and he does a di very different approach it's a it's a much more uh i don't know if the word would be mainstream um oh, yeah. but it's a much more relatable approach on a broad scale i guess yeah yeah absolutely yeah, and they've used the same scenario, the same story throughout horror films since this movie, because you get stuff like Disturbia, Bright Night, you know, Secret Window. All these films take the same type of plot of, you know, something's happening next door. You think you see the, the killer and it plays upon that, 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 um, that story on there. And I think Hitchcock obviously did it the best, but if you can take a story like this and be the first to do it and it carries throughout the ages of horror film, you know, you've, you've made something good. I think that this might be, I, mean, I was just saying when we were talking here, I'm like, is this my favorite made movie of his? Cause I mean, I love um, Hitchcock's work and i really want, it's, I'm due for a revisit on a lot of it too, because after watching this one, I'm like, man, I, I can't remember how that Technicolor played, you know, an aspect into his filmmaking and how, the suspense kind of was set up in some of his later works and um, especially very early works. Cause he's been, I mean, this was right in the middle of his career. I think he has a very you know, long multi-decade long um, career. So I think this might be, I mean, one of his best films. And I was surprised. Um, I liked rear window as much as I did on this rewatch. Cause I'd only seen it once before and just, just watching it, It's just like, you know, I think that there's, technically everything that you'd want in a, in a hitchcock film there's you know you have that suspense you have the isolation you have the technical you have you know these beautiful like long shots this can and it, you can just tell he has the budget he wants to to really make it work i mean everything in this is kind of working besides his relationship so i'm gonna say i mean this is the start of his 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 this is the start of his like peak man this is like when he's really yes. hammering out those badass movies um you know rear window and then he does vertigo mm -hmm. uh then he hits north by northwest and then psycho like like this this is him like this is this is like full-on hitchcock um kind of and this is i don't know i know he was you know he's making pictures in in um in 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 england like uh first um so i don't know when he moves and started doing like a lot of american pictures i'm not sure the the time i wonder but, i'm kind of wanting to i'm not gonna like look that up because i'm like kind of interested in that because i it's something i forgot because i know this was so this was paramount so he had moved to america whenever he made this so i'm thinking and i know rope was american and that was like late 40s right um and i mean he was more what much more like experimental not I guess not experimental, but a little more heady when in his like earlier films, you know. Um, but like I said, you know, when he gets to when he hits his peak, man, in the fifties, uh, he figured out how to appeal to a wide audience. He finally was able to go Hollywood, um, like balls to the wall, and you know, fill the fucking seats. And then he, like you said, he became he became the master of suspense, you know. Um, I mean, he, like, like I hear my grandpa still talking about Hitchcock um, and still to this day, you know, like throwing on a Hitchcock movie when it's on TV and being like, you know, telling me about when he remembers the first time he saw it, you know? Um, I love so that. like there's, there's a fucking impact with these movies and, and, you know, like, like Chris was saying, the rear window has been duplicated several times. Um, 
and uh, plenty of his other movies are being mm-hmm. duplicated, you know, as like a blueprint for filmmaking. So, uh, yeah, that, that says a lot, you know, let's not even talk uh, about psycho at that point. Cause we know. How yeah. That- yeah. We, yeah. We haven't even, <laughs> we're, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's one single human being who liked that, um, psycho remake at all <laughs> but like, like like you were saying i, I oh, actually God. saw the answer was um the 40s so he actually moved to um started making american film in the 40s which as we were talking edward mentioned chris mentioned i mentioned we all three mentioned how it kind of like really like again put those asses in the seat make some like high quality almost like classic um what is it transatlantic style um dialogue driven you know americanized horror not horror films but i mean like suspense films or thriller films at least a little bit of like romance you know thrown in there as well but again what is that that is you know that's film noir he's doing it again that's it so yeah and why the why the fuck did everybody have bright blue eyes in this movie did you notice that yeah jimmy stewart grace kelly they i mean they're all like and he kind of liked those characters like that man he had a uh, an uh he had a model figure for his his flicks, man. They're all they're all like classic, good looking people, you know. Like I, I saw the blue eyes, and like it caught me off guard. Like, hey, that person has blue eyes. That person, has... and then I was like, I couldn't take my eyes. I just kept staring at everybody's <laughs> eyes throughout the rest of the movie. Chris, I guarantee he did that on purpose. He did that shit on purpose for sure. <laughs> I mean, honestly, well, think about it. Like again, like we were talking, like making higher budget films he was able to afford with his budget to get first of all james stewart which is one of the fucking like you know crazy ass expensive actors at the time that everybody was trying to get and he was able to build sets and all this stuff so at the end of the day i'm sure that you know paramount and universal um as they collaborated on making various contracts with his films i'm you know i i'm speculating here but i would say that they were really trying to push the masses in the seat after that you know what i mean (laughs) but like that's something about, yeah for sure but that's something about the film that really makes it interesting is you have these these like big name actors and stuff and you have this you know coloration that we talk about like technicolor which was extremely expensive at the time and again and um within that we have this very small tiny one room voyeuristic story you know what i mean and i just that's did you feel like the the ending was very Sorry, did you did you feel like the ending was very cartoonish when the the killer you know enters his apartment and he has the flash bulbs and he's sitting in the chair and he flashes the bulb and the killer stops adjusts his eyes and then takes two steps flash bulb adjusts his eyes and it does it like four times like after the second time it became very cartoonish and almost <laughs> funny. I mean, yeah, I could say I, I could see where you're coming from, but I think that that kind of was meant to be almost. Would you say it was like almost like a suspenseful moment at the time, especially too? Maybe like it, it might be. I think by today's standards, maybe I don't know. Yeah, it came off a little silly to me. I mean, I still liked it, but it just it came off a little silly. Like we talk about, you know what I? You know what I could compare that probably to, and this might be a stretch because this is like polar opposites of films, but um, we talk about The Exorcist, for example. Today, whenever, you know, kids like Gen Z kids are watching The Exorcist, there's a lot to kind of laugh at. And I mean, hell, that fucking um, sequel, remake, whatever you want to fucking call it, was worth laughing at. But I mean, like the original film, whenever you're in the theater and you're watching that, I've I've seen rescreenings of that and kids are almost like laughing at times. So it's just like, 
there's something about the way culture was and the way that horror was made. And again, I, I could probably write an entire like fucking paper on this or something. And there's so much more to it, but I think basically just cultural differences between now and then in filmmaking was so much different. Like we had, you know, things that people would find like, you know, intense and scary in the 1950s is not going to translate the same way 70 years later. And it's something that's not really talked about a lot either. But I don't know if you guys feel about it. I mean, I might want to get your opinion too. But well, I- look at look at how it is now. Like everyone's desensitized for one, yeah. you know, and we all we do. I mean, all we do is like scroll through. I mean, all kids do is scroll through violence and, you know, depressing shit all day. They're like, oh, a fucking exorcist, like Christianity, you know, paranoia. Like that's not scary anymore, you know? <laughs> True. I mean, dude, yeah, 100% with that. I think that you put it best too, because now I'm thinking about it. You know how I talked about um, Jacques um, Turner was really wanting to make a film that was more sensual and kind of like talked about, you know, relationships and sex. And he couldn't do that because of censorship issues. And obviously, I think I'm pretty sure that um, Alfred Hitchcock um, battled a lot of censorship issues as well, right? Um, Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, for sure. I think one of his films even almost landed as like a video nasty later on. Um, I forgot which one it was. But Psycho. Was that the video nasty? Psycho. Ha- I'm pretty. The, the the shower scene is what I'm. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the one that landed the video mm-hmm. nasty, but the shower scene itself had a lot of controversy at that time. Um, with it, you know, showing the half nude woman. This was what '68, so you didn't have a lot of theatrical films back then that impicted so much nudity, even though there was nothing shown. But it looked like there was. I think that is part of the reason that black and white was utilized too, um, is because of the blood. Um, they didn't want it to be red. Maybe I might be just pulling this out of my ass, but I feel <laughs> like that's that could be. Um, I feel like I remember hearing something about that. That the like one of the reasons that he chose black and white because you know that was after it, Technicolor was already available. You know, um, so he chose Psycho in black and white, and there is definitely a. Pretty, uh, pretty, you know, aggressive stabbing sequence in the shower, and that's 1960. You know what I'm saying? So, dude, no, um, Edwin, you're yeah. right. I remember reading something like that. Yeah, you're right on that. Um, he yeah, that. I've heard the same thing. I can't remember if they couldn't like show the color and it was too much for people, or if they like said like, no, you can't, or if he couldn't get the color right, and so he used what was it like it was just straight up used chocolate syrup. Chocolate yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah. It wasn't even dyed or anything. It was just straight up chocolate syrup. But there's no blood in Rear Window at all, is there? Because like I don't think that no, no, there's no, no blood at all, nothing at all. So it's just like one of those things where this is like just six years later, um, six years earlier. I there's think. a dead, there's a dead dog. That's that's I mean, the only thing. The only type of violence is the dead dog, and well, like a, a strangulation type deal, like where he's trying to strangle the girl in the apartment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dead dog. That's nothing back then. You know, we don't have the. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not fine. A totally fine. Answer or anything. So that's that's the second movie. You know, we're talking about two movies right here that have dead animals in them. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. they love doing that shit back then. Like <laughs> fuck them animals. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's hilarious. Man, that's this is what Diodato watched before he made Cannibal Holocaust. That's <laughs> where he got his ideas from. Watching American movies. <laughs> was like, this, that's it that's what i want to do right there what was your favorite scene like all like favorite shot favorite scene from the movie at all 
it's gonna sound crazy because mine's from the first like five minutes, but it's that where we first get introduced to um all the characters, I mean, it's a whole the entire like courtyard of and like you see that heat wave. And I, I think whenever I, I I mean it's gonna sound again cliche to say, but like it's like cinema, like whenever you see the shot of the the you know the thermometer and then you see the shots of the people and like the dude's like sitting outside of his um you know sleeping outside of his um on his balcony outside of his um apartment that's what i was looking for the apartment man i think that's my favorite scene too like when he's staring at everyone he's like there's this part where he's looking at that like uh you know the blonde babe across the across the way and you know she's like doing the split and stuff like that um (laughs) it's just like it's like you know, you really get to see into like James Stewart's boredom in this film. Um, so I think that's my favorite scene too. And is this like the setup for um, everything that's going on? Cause it really just that you get thrown into the movie right then and there. And his girlfriend like wants to like yeah. hook up with him so bad, but he's so busy just like looking at other people that he has no interest. She's yeah, like, she gets like pissed off at him. Yeah, pay attention <laughs> to me. I'm over here. And he's like, She's over <laughs> this person. Does I like this how he basically says that we're not supposed to be together. I don't want to be with you anymore. And she's like, fine, we're, we're through until tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but my favorite scene, I really enjoyed the, the moment when the, the girlfriend and the maid go out of the apartment and go to dig up the flower bed and to try to find whatever is hidden underneath the flower bed. Because I mean, it, it drew a lot of, of, you know, intense moments. Um, I was on the edge of my seat. The, uh, the anticipation of, are they going to get caught? You know, who's, who's going to catch them? What's going to happen? I didn't expect her to like, just bail and just climb up the ladder and just jump to the window. I didn't expect that at all. <laughs> so I was very shocked that she would do that. And I, I just really enjoyed that moment. It was a lot of fun. I, I too love the the flower bed scene a lot. That was going to be my other other choice for sure. And I think that um, the direction of this, I mean, it's it's hard to even pick a scene because the entire thing is just so tailored, and you can really just feel each and every thing had a place to it, like every single seeing every single person every single character played a very important role and that's kind of like where it comes down to like social commentary almost you know what i mean it's just like you know at the time you're seeing all these different people like live their lives and he feels as if he he doesn't have that anymore i i mean that's how i interpret at least and i mean that's kind of untrue because his his girlfriend's like literally over there like pay attention to me like i like i mentioned so yeah i mean that's it's it's hard to pick that scene because you just live you feel like you're just living through his lens you know what i mean and it perfectly wraps up too because you know like we were talking about the opening scene you see everybody and then jeff goes through all this shit watching them you know getting obsessed with the guy murdering his wife um and then it you know it ends with not only jeff's story getting wrapped up but every single character that he was looking at at the beginning wrapping up to like their, their own arc has been went full circle. Like the people with the dog, the dead dog got a puppy now, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so I think yeah. that's a pretty, pretty cool aspect too to go along with the voyeurism aspect. For sure. There's only one negative that I could say about the film and 
the fact that he's a photographer and he grabs his camera and is looking through his camera lens the entire time at the would-be killer and is not taking one single damn picture. Yeah, I never really <laughs> thought about that. Why, why didn't he snap a picture? You know what I'm saying? I, I, it kept pissing me off. I was yelling at that. I was just like, take a picture, take the picture, take it. Maybe he couldn't get a good shot or something. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he's like, this is not the one. <laughs> it's that suspense, Chris. He's waiting on that picture. I thought that's what was going to happen. I thought he was going to take pictures and he was going to end up winning or getting that job or whatever, or getting a raise at his job because of the, you know, he, he solved the mystery of the murder and got evidence and turned it into his job. And it just didn't play out that way. Thought it was odd. Well, overall, what do you um, what do you think for your rating, Chris? What would you give this? Well, like I said, this was a first time watch. I don't know how I missed the movie, but uh, a lot of these older films I haven't had a chance to check out. And I I gave this movie an eight out of ten. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. It was very intense. Uh, it's another one of those movies that everyone talked about earlier. With you know, it's being driven by dialogue and. This one has a mix. You're driven by dialogue, but you're also driven by the voyeurism of it. Um, you want to see him looking out the window. Anytime that he's not looking out the window, you're kind of wanting to go back so you can see everybody. That's that's what's happening to them at the moment. And um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I wanted it to be a little longer. Uh, I was happy with the outcome. Um, you, you know, you want the you want him to be victorious, and he is. And uh, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I could understand why that the story went on to be duplicated multiple times and throughout history of horror films. Great film. Well said. And I mean, dude, I want to go perfect 10. Perfect 10 for me all around. There's nothing really... I mean, of course, you can like nitpick and, and, and gripe about you know here and there scenes, but really, obviously, I mean, it's just perfection in every way. It's absolutely beautiful storytelling, beautifully done, suspenseful. Um, it's it's great in every way. I really love it. All right. So moving on to one of my personal favorite serial killer movies of all time. And I really, really love this one. Um, we're talking 2007 David Fincher Zodiac. Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. He's still out there, Dave. Ah! Killing is his compulsion. It drives him, it's in his blood. Jeez. What? Squirrels. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have a gun. I can give you a lift to the service station. Do you always go around helping people in the night? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? I fucking love this film so much. Um, and I know that me and Edward was talking, he loves um, serial killer movies as well. And this is definitely no exception to Zodiac. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of fascination with. And again, this is kind of going back to, to film school, Tyler again. Um, I remember having this obsession with David Fincher <laughs> and um, I watched the social network, which he had actually made as well. And he had such meticulous style. It was almost, I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost down to um, David Lynch. 
style, like the filmmaking as how particular he is. So he like imports like fucking oak trees and like has them planted in California. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but like the, the Zodiac is like, he wanted it to be the murder. I mean, this is just like, it's, it's, it's crazy how much like work he put into making this exactly right. I know a lot of people um, consulted actually, I forgot to mention, I have the book right here. So this um, Zodiac book, it's actually, um, who was it? Robert Graysmith? Yeah, um, that book rules, man. It's fucking awesome. I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, <laughs> but um, Robert Graysmith wrote this book. Um, there is eyewitnesses. Um, there are people who had been victims um, different um, different people were still alive today. I forgot which ones are still alive now, but um, they actually consulted for the Zodiac film, which was based off of this book. And I think it's really interesting because he they went all out, like I said, down to the point where they wanted to ship in oak trees and plant them in California just to make sure that the the police sketches were exact because they had access to all the police sketches which i think is crazy so how technically complex this is i mean it's fantastic i guess we can start with like the the opening which i absolutely love it's um what is it the lover's lane a murder which i well done mm-hmm. no. you go ahead chris yeah so you have a movie that dives into the world of a serial killer and immediately you have jake gyllenhaal you have Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo. You have all of these amazing actors in this film. And, I mean, you cannot get a better cast together to create this film. This was absolutely perfect casting down to every single character, in my opinion. Yeah, a hard agree on that one. Um, and I think it's, it's a uh, – I think Downey does a great job uh, – He's kind of like um, he's kind of like the Rust Cole from True Detective of this of Zodiac. Um, he is like super obsessed with the story. I really love his character. He is like the definition of a noir character to me um, in this film. Uh, so I think Downey is a favorite of mine. Um, definitely, just a, a great casted film, great looking film too. Dude, I'm glad you said that too, because if you look at um, this style, it's completely different from our last two. I think this is like when we get into like the neo-noir kind of vibe. It's not necessarily a noir film. It's more towards like just true crime. But at the end of the day, it has like all those traits that we we knew previously. So I'm glad you, that was a nice call out there because I think that that's, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, you get a mix with the detective side of what's going on, a mix with the killer side of what's going on because you see the killers take or the the killings take place and so you know what happens and then you jump into the investigation side of it as well so that's where the noir part i think really hits its mark um but that opening scene is i mean right off the bat you're just shocked you you get in the car and it's just gunshot straight to the face killing two people immediately it really sets the tone for what you're getting into and Wow, I mean, right off the bat, you're just you're hooked. So, what I think that really makes this movie um, kind of fall, I feel like it's one of the better uh, 
examples of a horror noir because you have all the archetypes here. So you have um, you you have the people that are investigating um, the team at the San Francisco Chronicle, um, which I think is really cool because Gray Smith is a cartoonist that gets involved um, and becomes obsessed. So I really like when they use um, when they use main characters in the investigation. They're not necessarily a cop. Um, or a reporter, you know, he's just the cartoonist, but he also drags in um, Paul Avery, which is uh, Downey's character, um, and uh, they get entangled into this. And and what makes it not just a noir, a neo noir, and more of a uh, the horror elements is that the Zodiac Killer is not just a serial killer. He's you know he's writing these cryptic messages and taunting. Um, the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and it's almost got this, like, since he's using these cryptic messages, it almost has this cult aspect. Um, and even his outfit that he's wearing, the Zodiac, when he, he kills them, you know, he's wearing the, um, the mask. Um, uh, there is this very, like, occult, ritualistic um, murder that, that is going on. Um, and I feel like that really pushes it towards the realm of horror. Um, more so um, than a lot of other movies um, that could be categorized as horror noir. It's interesting you say that. I'm actually thinking about that now because that outfit is. And I heard that you know, his outfit that he wore in, in the movie was, I guess, an exact replica of what eyewitnesses have described. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> this is not even home with a film, but it's just like, what was his. What did he have? I mean, I, obviously, like horror, um, not horror, but. Um, Serial killers don't really have motives a lot of times, but like, what the fuck was his motive? You know what I mean? Is is he a cult? Is is this kind of like a? Can we say this is a cult movie at that point? Well, you know, you know, you you've read the book. You know, he, you know, Graysmith suggests that, um, uh, and, and the movie follows the book. It does so well, uh, mm -hmm. so well. It really does. I mean, there's definitely a lot of liberties, um, especially with Paul Avery's character, um, you know, kind of how obsessed he got into it, but uh. The movie follows a lot of the book very well, and there's a suggestion that maybe there is a group of Zodiac killers out there, mm -hmm. um, and maybe it is some kind of a, a, you know cult ritual killing. Um, and, and something that really kind of lingers is that there's never any answers, and that is something that really, really makes a noir a noir, is that there is no resolution because right and wrong are not what we're looking for here. We're not looking for resolution in this story um, because we're left with answers. And that's what you know leaves us obsessed as the main characters. Um, that's what we, you know, we become Paul Avery. We become Robert Graysmith. Um, we become obsessed yeah. with the Zodiac killer, just like everyone else does. I think one of the reasons why we get so involved as well is because they throw all the information out there. Everything that you question about what's happening, who it could be, why they're doing it, it's brought up. There's even a brief moment where they talk about, hey, maybe this person is schizophrenic. And then they have this person like, well, if he was schizophrenic, he wouldn't write with the same form of writing that he has as himself. 
it would be a different writing because this the mind works in different ways like that but you're you're led to believe so many different theories so many different people and you don't know which one to investigate just like the investigators in real life you don't know that either so you're just as invested and you're wanting to find out who it is and who you think it might be as much as the people on screen yes 100 100 that's that's i think that's what makes this this movie so entrancing um which also that to me um applies to the occult aspect because um like the occult is supposed to um you know it works beneath the surface of reality and it's things that you don't see happening um i think this film really really has something you know below the surface that you're not seeing on screen and most of the scariest parts of this movie are not things that you actually see um it's things that you're thinking about um for example when they they interview um the dude that they think is the killer uh um he's got the uh is lee arthur arthur lee yeah. or lee, lee arthur i think or whatever his first name is yeah you're like this guy this guy it all points to him but then it's like one thing throws you off um and then the rest of the movie you're you're thinking like how can that not be him um it's like almost like a spell's been cast you know um and then i think the scariest yeah. scene of all is when graysmith goes to the guy who does the posters he's looking for the posters of the the guy who has the films and the he's basement in the basement scene. holy shit that scene is Dude, that well. I was um, about ready to mention that because that's my favorite scene. I'll let you, you go on that one because I think this is going to be this is a good. Well, scene. You, you know, you've read the book and it's scary like that in the book too. That's my favorite part in the book because um, he's talking about he hears the the creaking in the floor above him, um, and then in the movie I don't remember if it's in the book too, but in the movie he says something about the posters and the guy's like, "Well, that's impossible." He's like, "I draw all the posters," um, and then you're like, "Oh fuck, that's the guy," and then. He he says something. Gyllenhaal uh, says he something. Asked, or Grace, yeah. What's he ask? He yeah, asks something. Yeah, he says, "Is there somebody else in the house? Mm -hmm. Is there somebody upstairs?" And he's never given an answer. The, the guy won't tell him anything. Oh man, I'm getting chills thinking about it right here. Yeah. I'm like alone <laughs> in my office. I'm like, that shit is scary, man. Dude, he like does it just like fuck with him almost too. It's like very much just like you know, in your face kind of stuff. It's just like, hey, I need to get out of here. That's kind of like his like mo, and he's like, and that scene where like the part of the scene where he runs up and he tr he tries to leave, and the door's locked, and you're like, oh shit, is this it? You know what I mean? Is, is, is this what's happening? Yeah, yeah. As he's running up the stairs, because you think you hear the same thing he hears somebody walking, so he's like, I'm gonna leave now, and he runs up the stairs. At every corner that he passes by, you just think that something's gonna happen, that somebody's gonna reach out attack him or hit him every single corner he takes until he gets to the door where he's greeted by the same guy who was just in the basement. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's truly like, uh, I mean, it's, it doesn't get more, you know, hor horrifying than that suspenseful. Um, and then, you know, the movie's left open-ended, you know, you get to Gray Smith tracks. Doesn't he, he goes to Alan again. Um, and they just like, kind of like share this, this kind of like empty gaze um you know he, he you never and never find out if it was him or not you know um exactly so it's just you know you're left 
you're left at the same point you were at the beginning. You know, nothing is resolved. Nothing has no, no answers have been given. And, and honestly, by the end of the movie, you're left lonelier. You're left let down. Um, and I think that the bleakness of this ending is what makes it a, a noir so, so mm. very well. Um, I, I think the bleakness really, really is captured. And, I, and that's what I'm always looking for in noir films is that bleak ending. I love it. Yeah, I'm actually looking at the the way the book ends because I'm like, I think that they end the same way, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I think the book was like, I remember the book and the movie because I read the book and then I watched the or I saw the movie years before I ever read the book. You know, I saw it when it came out. And then when I read the book, like, I mean, it was like maybe like five or six years ago. I watched the movie after and I was like, damn, that's like spot on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, did a I great job. In, the, the first time I watched the movie, I went into it not knowing anything about the Zodiac because it was one of the fewer serial killers mm. that I knew anything about. And I didn't know how accurate the film was based on actual historical you know, documents. And I started researching it and then watching it again now, going back and finding more stuff online and researching some more. It's very close with everything that was said throughout the investigation. It's It's almost spot on. Well, dude, no, I mean, they had people like I know that throughout this book, there are many different people throughout the Zodiac um, case that is mentioned. And I know that whoever's still alive, I forgot which ones are still alive today um, off the top of my head. But I know they all served as advisors. So Fincher himself um, loved the book. He hired a bunch of people who collaborated on publishing this book um i know that they got full access to all the police files to all the police sketches any kind of like leads they have everything about the zodiac they basically were able to lay out in front of them so fincher being insufferable (laughs) as a filmmaker as he is which is fucking he's fucking genius at it though he can't say anything else but he the guy is so cutthroat when it comes to filmmaking I fucking love him to death, but the thing is, is like he just knows his shit, and like if he takes on a film, he's gonna make sure that it's absolutely meticulously combed through every little detail when he goes out to release it. So they had tons of people that was on this film, and they spent so much money. I think um, I just looked it up while we were talking a second ago. Eighty-five million dollar was the budget, which is extremely expensive, and that was just essentially because they wanted everything to look exactly the way it was. In the police sketches and the and the pieces of information from the book, from the eyewitness accounts, and from all the people who consulted. So I mean, this is a this is about as real as it gets. And when it comes down to like film noir, you know, this is a detective story at the end of the day. So like that's that's it. I'm mean, like we we see these you know unsolved cases like this like this is a crazy ass unsolved case, probably the one, and that's why it fits so perfectly in with seeing eyewitness accounts i guess you would say and that's what i think is so fucking creepy about the zodiac killer is just the fact that the guy he could be out there but i mean um that i i think i think you're right man i think um i think this this is just a a really solid noir film by a great uh director and you know you're saying you know he might be you know, a hard ass, but that's what it takes to make a great film. I think um, you don't have any, you can't have any like half assery when you're making a, a flick like this. Um, uh, 
I mean, what director can you think of with their best movies? I'm sure they were, they were a prick in some sense. You know what I mean? Um, but, but he has a vision, you know, uh, Fincher had a vision and he, he definitely pulled it off, uh, pulled it off, you know, perfectly. I think he did like, I forgot what scene it was, but he did over a hundred takes. He had like 99 takes. And um, some scenes were like 120, 130 takes just to get one piece correct. And he would, he would basically just say like, Hey, you know, we're, we're filming this strain of dialogue and this is all going to be just one take and we're just doing it. We're not having any cuts at all. And he would just run it over and over and over to what was perfect. And as you mentioned, I mean, like it, it pays off. And I think it's the sign of like a craftsman. You know what I mean? Like you see like a true craft with venture. He knows his style, very shallow depth of field in terms of cinematography, um, very quick witted dialogue. Uh, I mean, it's it's brilliant, not only for the fact that it's about the Zodiac Killer, which is, I mean, the story is done so well, but technical, like a technical aspect. The, the thing is like a masterpiece, you know what I mean? A technical and a, you know, story-wise, a, a masterpiece. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, um, you look at like, we were talking about how Rear Window, the set, um, is a role in itself. I think I think San Francisco is a role in itself in this too. Um, California in general, uh, I, I think that's and, and you know Fincher. I'm sure you know this that he a lot of those scenes, the backgrounds were used with computer generated. Like he he had a set and then added the depth and the fogginess and all that stuff um, to kind of like stage this, uh, this stage of the set itself to kind of be menacing along with what is going on. And it kind of gave it that more noir aspect. He basically turned the story of the Zodiac into an actual noir, um, which, I which I think that. is pretty interesting too. Yeah. It's fucking cool. Yeah. I mean, I know like on the social network, for example, he, took the Winklevoss twins and put the face over what is the army hammer they chose. And they had two different actors and he wanted, he, he was like, well, we could just keep their face like, you know, normal looking and just let it kind of go that way. But he was like, no, the Winklevoss twins have to be more identical than what these actors look. So they digitally scanned army hammer's face and then like plastered it on the other one. Cause he wanted it to be just a little bit different to make him look more identical than fraternal because it's how the story was supposed to go. I, I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah, dude. It's so it's, it's fucking nuts. So, um, and I'm pretty anti like CGI, CGI, but like, um, when a person like Fender can use it in like a, a good way you know I, I can respect that a lot yeah and i think that i mean talking on the horror roots too like zodiac i mean we had already spoke on this before too zodiac's actually fucking scary like scarier oh, yeah. than rear window even with the um the time period um differences in effect um scarier than cat people honestly and it kind of and does I mean, it's not anything like cat people, but it kind of does have similar themes in terms of like you like what um you were saying, Edwin, to um kind of like how it has a, almost like a weird cult undertone, like how you can kind of like put mm-hmm. it as a cult. So I think that's something that's kind of yeah. Do is just like you know maybe we need to look at horror noir as having a weird kind of like undertone of cult deep in the subtext like way deep in the subtext it's just like yes does this, yes, is this considered 
But yeah, I, I think I think the occult aspect too is what um I mean I'm just I'm drawn to occult things. Um anything that is, you know, um Pokey. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I think it makes it scarier. I mean uh and, and things that are left unanswered is always always better to me too. So um yeah, yeah, definitely think that movie kinda hits all those spots. Dude, off topic completely from Zodiac, but while we're talking about folk, there's actually um Severin Films put out a box set, what, like two years ago now? I don't know if you have it or not. It's like, uh, what is it called? Um, Woodland Days. And no, no, it's that's actually the um, the documentary. All the Haunts Be Hours. Is that what it is? I don't know if you guys have got that or not, but it's a whole fucking like complete series of, I guess, folk stories and. I've went through that twice now and I fucking love that documentary, it. that long ass documentary. Yeah. Like three and a half hours. Is that the one? Yes. Yeah, but, I fucking love that documentary. <laughs> that is comprehensive as shit. And not only is it comprehensive as shit, it's genius in every way. I just, I, I feel complete watching it. Like they did not leave anything out. Love that. But also they have a, that set like Severn put out a set with that in it. And they have like 14 other horror films attached, and it's a fantastic set. Zodiac should be in there. Honestly, <laughs> now we're done. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, yeah, fuck, fuck, just throw Zodiac in there for good measure at the end. So, are there, so we already talked about the scene where the basement, that's my favorite scene. I guess we'll talk about um, any other scenes that stood out before we move on and close the, the, the film up because there are so much to it. Do you guys have any other like favorite moments? Oh, Edward oh, already man, talked I, about. I, the, go ahead, Edward. No, go ahead. Which one? Where we? No, you're good. Yeah. I was just gonna say you'd already brought up this. My favorite scene is the scene where they're interviewing uh, Lee Arthur for the very first time, and they're asking him for his watch, and you, you see that the zodiac sign is on the watch. It's a zodiac watch, and he brings up topics that they weren't even asking him about. They they start saying something to him, and he just like out of nowhere just be like. Well, the, the the knives in my car had blood on them. I've already told the other officers about it. Like it was just very conspicuous about about everything. Uh, that's my single favorite scene from the movie. I I love both of those scenes, and then I also love when Graysmith goes to visit uh, Avery, um, and Avery is just like totally washed up, drunk, um, and the Zodiac has destroyed his life. Um, I think there's just that's just an awesome, powerful scene, and Robert Downey Jr. plays it so well. Um, and I, I love to see how a case can destroy someone because of their obsession. Um, and you, you know, you think, you know, did the Zodiac is it the Zodiac's power over him, or is it just his own human obsession? You know, you don't really know either. Absolutely, yeah. that's beautiful. I think I never really looked in that scene like deeply but i think that my two favorite are the ones that we had discussed with the watch and the basement scene um just being creepy and fucking weird you know obviously it's just nuts but, i mean I, oh I think- um also too like if you if you bring in like the other two unlike the other two movies the this one pushes three hours mm-hmm. for a time frame that's and- a good point yeah I don't know what it was about this viewing of it, but this was my second viewing watching it, and it flew by. Like it felt like it lasted about an hour. I was so interested. I was so involved. I was every moment that you're supposed to be on your edge of your seat for the the basement scene, 
all of that, I was there. I was right in, and I did not want the movie to end, but it ended quicker than I thought it was. I, I literally thought I was been watching it for about an hour, and it was done. Well, I think it kind of comes out of like the Zodiac murder is huge. Like this thing is like there are it's a huge case, but when you take something that is very personal to these characters, and these characters are real life people, and it's almost again you get a very a very like small lens glimpse into their life. Like you get super in depth. And I think that it's just like following these guys around, like trying to fucking figure out what the hell's going on and the twist and turns that Fincher puts into there and all that together just kind of like makes it work. Like It's a perfect, I mean, it's a perfect way to tell it. It's much better than just like saying like, Hey, this is the Zodiac killer. Um, Here's the detective trying to figure out the case. We're just going to, you know, BS our way through it. And then at the end, not give a payoff or anything. But this film is like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to, you know, we're going to go very personal with these characters. We're going to go all the way to the very end. And we're not going to get the payoff that we wanted. But, you know, know, we, we did get the payoff, I think. Even though it's an open-ended story, we get that. And I think that's why it's so satisfying to watch, why it goes so quickly, and why it's, I mean, again, it's a technical achievement on top of being a fantastic film. You know what I mean? For sure. So, Chris, mm-hmm. what would be, um, what's your rating for this one? I gave this movie a 9 out of 10. Uh, the first time I watched it, yeah. I knew nothing about the Zodiac. I gave it a 7. And mm-hmm. this time around, after you know doing research, um, getting back involved with the movie again, it flew by. I was more interested. I was more intrigued, and it was more personal to me, I guess, maybe because I knew some of the the, the story behind it. And uh, I I loved it this time around. I mean, I, I mean, I really liked it the first time, but this time I was even more into it. So Dude, I, I gave it a nine. Because um, me and you had talked about it before, and you were like, I really liked the movie, but I had some problems with it. So now I'm glad like we like now that we kind of like rewatched it, it kind of I mean, it's it is. I mean, it's I think I liked it even more than the last time. So um, I gave it a nine out of ten. So I think that that's definitely right. I'm right there with you. And I feel the exact same way in terms of, you know, the second watch, because I think I gave it an eight out of ten the last time I watched it. So to recap, Chris and me, um, Chris gave a seven out of ten to cat people. I gave a nine out of ten. Um, Chris gave an eight out of 10 to, um, rear window. Right. And then I gave a 10 out of 10. And then for Zodiac, Chris gave a nine out of 10. I also gave a nine out of 10. None of that matters because at the end of the day, Edwin is going to pick third, second, and first place. Do you have any idea what you're going to do? Edwin, you still thinking? Oh no, man. I, I had my decision from the jump. Hell yeah. Sweet. Okay. So. We could take it. Let's do it. So in third place. All right. Third place is definitely rear window. What? I was not expecting that. Son of a yeah. bitch. Yep. <laughs> Dude, that give that like a 10 out of 10. So in terms so in, in terms of like that in comparison to the other two films, why did you choose it for third? Um, because I think okay, I'm and I'm not this is these ratings are the 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 way we're eliminating, the way I'm eliminating is not based on how good the film is. I love fucking Rear Window. It's a 10 out of 10 movie. Um, but in terms of like what makes a horror noir for me, um, I think it succeeds the least in what uh, kind of compiles that. Um, I think it's more along the lines of a suspense thriller um, 
rather than a straight up noir um, and a horror movie. Um, so uh, that that's why I put it in third place. Yeah, fuck you, Chris. <laughs> you know what? Fuck I didn't Mike. say that. I didn't say that. Chris. <laughs> Tyler, Tyler did. <laughs> but I, I'm just gonna say fuck Mike because he's not even here and he already beat me. That's hilarious. No, you make valid points uh, with it. You, you know, you get more of a suspense, more of a mystery than a noir film. Which uh, I mean, it's it's valid. I I I don't disagree with you. It sucks that I'm losing, but I don't disagree. <laughs> well, it's it's a happy ending too. It, it wraps up in a happy ending. Everybody's, you know, um, there's there's no loose ends in this film. Um, so uh, yeah, that's why I kind of put it towards the. That's why it gets third place. And it's really tough for Edwin too, because at the end of the day, these I have never. Uh, this is the first show that we've had. I've had three solid picks. Like I have always hated one of them and liked the other two to some degree, but this one is like, it's fucking hard to pick. Like these are really good films. All of them are. So like when you say third place, it's like trying to like say like, Hey, what was the one that, you know, was fucking a masterpiece, but at the same time, you know, not as good as the other two. So it's like almost impossible to even pick, but I think it's fair. Yeah. I think then these are valid. So who is the winner of Fright Fights? The winner is Zodiac. Wait, hey! Oh, wait. Yeah. Mike wins. Um, Are you fucking kidding me? And, and then <laughs> the reason why, the reason why is because, so so Cat People is more of a horror film rather than a noir. What makes it noir to me is that, um, you know, you, you focus on, like, like we were talking about, the technical aspects on the cinematography, uh, you know, um, there's a lot of chiaroscuro, uh, dark shadows. It definitely falls into that category. Um, and, and I think the the femme fatale is it's a, a great example of a femme fatale. Um, but uh, I, I think Zodiac fully encapsulates what a noir is um, and what horror is because um you know there there is the serial killer using these these complex um codes and ciphers to taunt the people investigating it and then the investigators don't win in the end um they're still they they come out lesser people than they were in the beginning and i think that's what makes makes a noir a noir is that these characters no matter how archetyped they are, no matter how much you could plug in Sam Spade, you could plug in, um, uh, you know, you could plug in Philip Marlowe, you could plug in Russ Cole, you could plug in all these other noir characters. Um, and in the end, they're all still going to lose in the end. Um, and with a bleak ending, that's always a solid pick for me. I think it, I think Zodiac fully encaptures what a uh, horror noir is. So, Dude, I'm, I'll be honest. I did not. I did not see that coming. It's a great. I mean, it's well, a great. Good. Thing. I just think it's that's that's good. I'm, I'm glad I could surprise everyone. I'm glad I could surprise everyone. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is this, Edwin? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, I think that's actually very valid. And I think you bring up some really good points. And I'm um, defending Zodiac. I mean, I think that everybody that watched Zodiac in this room, um, or rewatched it loved it this time like we really truly can see the craft at work there and i mean cat people 
I think is a very worthy second as well. And I think that that's, I'm very happy with the the end result. I think that now that we've rediscussed it um, as a whole, that kind of all falls into place perfectly. First place going to Zodiac, second place going to Cat People, and third place going to Rear Window. So I think that's and, and all those movies are tens, man. All those movies are tens. And you know, here's the crazy thing is that all when 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 you gave me these movies, I was like, man, I've literally seen these movies all like a hundred times and I fucking love them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, like it's something that I could totally naturally just bullshit about because I've already, you know, that's these are these are top movies for me. I think they're like, you know, they're definitely on my top list of favorite movies. Um so it like I said, it wasn't the decisions weren't based on merit in terms of quality. It was based on what makes a horror noir to me. So um I think they're a great picks and I think they're great fucking films, uh, regardless of how the uh um you know the the winnings came out. For sure. And um I before we even close that one up, do you want to um I know this is this is something that you picked out when the Horror Noir. Um, I had a great time doing it. I'm glad you came on. But what would be, for our listeners, what would you say some of the top Horror Noir films that you would recommend that they go out and see immediately, like some of your favorite Noirs? Oh, uh, there are two that come to mind perfectly to me as what a Horror Noir should be. Uh, there's a film called Angel Heart mm. um, starring Mickey Rourke as the main character um and uh um uh robert de niro as uh the antagonist um it is to me it is the perfect blend of horror and noir uh it is a private investigator mystery um and uh basically you know things unravel and it's not what it seems uh second would be true detective season one I think it's the one of the it's the most perfect pieces of uh horror and crime that there ever could be and ever will be uh russ cole that. is the def russ cole is the definition of a uh noir archetype um yeah, it's got everything occult stuff uh i mean it's just it's it's a badass movie other uh, honorable mentions are lord of illusions um the the clive barker film mm-hmm. uh it's a great Private Investigator movie, um, awesome horror. Uh, uh, the Believers is another occult um, kind of mystery. Uh, so, so those are some really good ones. Um, I haven't seen The Believer. Is that the nineties um, film? Is that uh, the one I think from the nineties. It's Martin Sheen. I think it's late eighties. Eighties, um, okay. Yeah, it's like eighty-seven. Uh, it's a really, really good horror noir. Um, Trying to think of another one. Wolfen. If you've ever seen Wolfen, Wolfen's a really good one based on Whitley Strieber book. Uh, Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway, Shutter Island. Um, yeah, those are those are probably my ones that I'd say go see. But uh, yeah, definitely Angel Heart. If you can track down Angel Heart, uh, Manhunter. I don't know if any of you seen Manhunter. Yeah, Michael Mann's Angel Heart's genius too, and Lord of Illusions probably Clyde Barker's best film he ever made. Oh, for sure, for sure, the best yeah. film he ever made. Yeah, hands down. Um, so yeah, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of really good flicks out there, um, and I, uh, you know, even in fiction, uh, there's a lot of great fiction out there. Um, 
a lot of great books. Uh, there's a book um, by Brian Evanson called Last Days. Uh, it's a man. It's a badass uh, noir mystery. It's written like something that Raymond Chandler would write. Um, there's a series by uh, Laird Barron uh, called it's the Isaiah Coleridge series. Um, Blood Standard, Black Mountain, and uh, Worse Angels. Great horror noir. Um, private investigator shit. So um, there's there's a ton of stuff out there. For sure, man. Those are some great picks. And um, if our listeners wanted to reach out to you on social media or follow you, um, where would they go to? Yeah. Uh, so I would suggest I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, Instagram, just look up Gravely Unusual. Um, uh, I'm on there. I'm always talking shit on there, uh, mostly on Twitter. So <laughs> find me on there. Um, and you might unfollow me because I talk a lot of shit, but it's mostly just about movies, um, and books. I also have a sub stack where I post like my essays and, uh, reviews and fiction. Um, it's called pessimisticism. Um, and it's, uh, under Edwin Callahan. I think just look me up on Substack If you find my, um, social medias, I have a link on there. Um, and you can also follow Castain publishing on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and we also have a big cartel cast name publishing dot com where you can buy all of our books and, um, things like that. Do you guys have any books coming out soon? Uh, yeah, I, um, we have a, a, a Western horror coming out called the winnowing draw by Michael Titchy. Uh, that's, it's, a, just a phenomenal book. It's like if Cormac McCarthy had cryptids, um, in his book, uh, just a just a great, just a great piece of fiction, a brilliant novel, really. Um, and then I have a collection coming out, my first short story collection called "The Histories of Mago." Um, it's all kind of Ligotti. Uh, there's a lot of horror, there's a horror noir story in there, um, a lot like Ligotti and Lovecraft, um, mixed with a lot of crime elements, uh, a lot of Appalachian elements. Um, and, uh, that should be out at the end of January. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely check that out. For sure. I mean, I a hundred percent would urge everybody to check it out. Cause I've read some of your stuff and it's a, a fucking, I've never seen so many like different kind of genres being able to be meshed together. And some of the stuff that you've, you've written, I absolutely love all your work. So I definitely Thank you, man. Urge I appreciate that. To check it out for sure. Yeah. And of course, we are um, on Facebook. Join our Facebook group, um, our Twitter. We are also on the Slasher app. Follow us on Letterboxd. Um, Chris, it's been awesome. Edwin, it's been awesome. Everybody who's been listening here, we love y'all. Reach out to us if you have any questions. We want to chat some horror. Peace out. Have a good night.